You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 173, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's going to be a different episode. I haven't done one in a while. It's been, I've been very busy with my other podcasts, but I want to just do it live, present an opportunity for people to feedback or kind of watch it. But we're going to talk about a t- an episode that I'll title just as It's Over because our president declared the pandemic over. I think it's time just to look at what's been going on, look at what we've talked about in the show for over two years now. I've tried not to focus much on COVID, especially last year, because it's kind of annoying, but also um, along those same lines, it's been really annoying. And I think it's something that just kind of get off my chest. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to kind of go through all of COVID, what's been going on, where we are, where we should be. And, and I think just to have a better idea because th- things just broken. And so let's just begin. I've made some notes to try and make sure I encompass everything here. Let's begin first what COVID is. COVID-19 is actually a disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is the coronavirus, and it's the second one. The first SARS-1 is the original SARS, the OG, right? The one that swept through Asia and Canada in some respects and some parts of Europe. Caused a lot of problems, got people really sick, and it did not spread much. It was contained very easily because it was a different type of virus than SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 was easily transmitted. Uh, you're transmitted even before you're uh, showed signs oftentimes. And so and it had a, and so it could spread quickly, very easily. And if you've never had exposure to it, which of course no one had because is you're basically naive from an immunological standpoint, uh, you could get really sick, especially if you're elderly. I mean, that was clear very early on, and we're talking early 20, 2020 in February and March. We knew that it was the people most at risk were those who are the elderly. Uh, and certainly people with comorbidities, people who are sicker, who have metabolic disease, like people who are obese or people with hypertension, heart disease, those sorts of things, they were at higher risk for the, for problems. And so that's sort of the backdrop of when it began. It's important to remember we don't know exactly where it began, whether it was actually a zoonotic, meaning it started in animals, or whether it started in a lab, in, which is you know in Wuhan, which is obviously one of the theories. It's initially, I think, there's a, evidence that suggests that it was from the lab because they were experimenting on viruses, especially coronaviruses that they acquired from bats. Is that where it came from? Not sure. Uh, I think there's reasonable evidence that you could make the sur- surmise that it possibly was, but it doesn't really matter. I, it matters, but it doesn't matter in the, the light of our discussion today, because we're just going to talk about the disease. So once you get infected with the coronavirus, it can cause a, an immune response for your body. It can cause an upper respiratory tract infection, which is usually what people get. That's like a cold, right? So that's runny nose. Maybe you lose your sense of taste or smell. Uh, you can get coughing and uh, those sorts of 
upper respiratory symptoms. What was especially bad with SARS-CoV-2 is it oftentimes became a lower respiratory tract infection where it gets in your lungs and cause pneumonia and sort of host of all sorts of other problems. And then when you get a really bad infection, pneumonia, you can, other parts of your body can, with the immune, sort of the immune cascade, you can get other sorts of symptoms and problems. And that's, you know, where oftentimes caused fatalities and significant morbidity. So the one thing I think is there, there are a number of things that with this, that's really hard to put your head around because at some point this became a political issue and it became a, well, political disease. And there were two sides and there are never two sides. It's never been the way we've been in the show. It's been a nuanced show. I like to think that I like to look at both sides. I obviously have uh, inclinations towards one way or the other, but I think it's important to recognize that not someone's, someone is not always right. Someone's not always wrong. There's probably somewhere in between. There's a gray area. And one could say that this is a very deadly disease when you're immunologically naive, meaning you've never been exposed, you have no prior immune response because of vaccination or something like that. That's a very different situation than someone who has been exposed, been vaccinated, and now maybe you know it's different. Also, if you're young or old, healthy or unhealthy, lucky and unlucky, right? That's some, always part of the case with any sort of disease or problem, you know, trauma, certainly everything, you know, you can be lucky or unlucky. You can step off. I can't tell you how many people I've taken care of in my practice who've done things that are ordinary. And for whatever reason, they break their ankle. Like they, you know, step down one step the wrong way. Right. And whatever that means, they jump down from a two foot wall and, you know, you probably could do it a thousand times and be fine. And then that one time that I see you is when you've broken your ankle or twisted or something like that. Same thing can be happen with infectious diseases. You can have you can be exposed to something many times, totally normal course. And then for whatever reason, one time, or maybe your genetics are wrong or, you know, something else about, about your recent infection, perhaps some medication you're on, something that's set you up for some reason to be more at risk for a serious complication or you know, potentially death. We don't know a lot to understand a lot of that stuff. They happen at the small levels. And again, it's sort of like cancer. You get exposed to radiation. Some people get cancer. Some people don't. Don't know why. It just is. That's just the way things ha happen. But that all aside, there are certain things that we knew about SARS-CoV-2. And I'd say that as someone who doesn't didn't know anything about it. I mean, as an anesthesiologist, I certainly don't know a lot about, I don't pretend to know, be an expert in immunology or, you know, infectious diseases. I talk to people who are, and that's where I get my knowledge. And so when I talked to Dr. David Graham way back in April of 2020, he presented a pretty grim picture of this pandemic that was going to come. He said, this is a highly infectious disease. It's going to affect you multiple times throughout your life. Most likely what's going to happen, it'll be like the other four coronaviruses that are, that are circulated within human beings. It'll be the fifth and it'll be endemic, which means it'll always be present. It'll always be changing slightly. You're going to get infected multiple times. Probably, not for sure, but probably it's going to be the worst the first time you get it. Every time you get after that will probably not be quite as bad. Now, of course, that means, as with anything with nuance, sometimes the second or third time might be worse than the first time. But generally speaking, the disease, the, the fatality rate, the sort of morbidity rate will lessen over time. Probably not so much with the change in the virus in the sense that the virus gets weaker, although that does also happen over time, but probably more just in the fact that your immune system recognizes enough that it does not you know, freak out, for lack of a better term, and when it's exposed to it. And so it won't get, it won't get you as sick. And it won't cause as much of a lower respiratory infection. And it'll just be 
sort of be able to hold it in check so that it just becomes an upper infection. This doesn't mean that you have massive circulating antibodies for SARS-CoV-2. Now, you do initially after infection of anything, but those antibodies wane. They have to. That's how your immune system is designed. So measuring antibodies and the antibody levels is sort of determining how immune you are from something is probably not terribly helpful because, of course, <laughs> if if that was all you would, if that's all you had to have all the time, then you'd have you've been exposed to so many viruses and so many uh, pathogens through your life, you couldn't have that many antibodies circulating to, to keep you give you sterilizing immunity usually. And so, if that's the case, because you know, your blood would be like molasses, you wouldn't work. So you have to, your body has this sort of mechanism where it has memory cells, it mem- remembers like, hey, I've seen this before, and it can easily ramp up real quickly. If it's a novel virus it's never seen before, it takes a while to get that immune response. And for some people, and I think this is probably the case, especially if you're elderly, for whatever reason, you just weren't able to mount the immune response soon enough to actually uh, get better. And do kids have some sort of inherent extra plasticity and that they're better with these upper respiratory infections like adenovirus, rhinovirus, coronaviruses? I don't know. Maybe. And that that's why they don't get as sick. That's probably the case. How exactly that is, we're not sure. I don't think we exactly know the mechanism. But as you, anyone who's had a small child or raised kids, you know that they're sick all the time when they're little. I mean, they're getting three, four, five colds every year. And those colds are just different viruses. And that's just part of the normal you know, thing of growing up. Most of the time, it's just a cold. On super rare occasions, it can cause worse, worse problems. And I think in general, I think it's pre- pretty indisputable that... SARS-CoV-2, this coronavirus, is worse than most common colds. And now maybe that's because it's new. And like I said, it hasn't quite evolved so that it's not quite as lethal. Uh, That tends to be the course of most viruses. They generally get a little less lethal, especially these upper respiratory infections. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe, you know, I'm not sure. But I think the fact of the matter is it's just not that dangerous to kids. We knew this in April of 2022. We knew... And looking at what's happening in China, despite all the people freaking out, all the things going on, it was clearly uh, not as dangerous to children, to people who are younger. It was definitely more dangerous to people who are older, the elderly. That was clear in the cruise ship data. And I think when that's like, it went through, just like I think an aircraft carrier in the U.S. fleet, uh, it went ripped through that fleet. And the people who got the most sick generally were older people. So that's the backdrop. And so I think the key things to remember is it's going to be around forever. You're going to get it multiple times. There are long-term and short-term consequences uh, for it. But, you know, long-term, I think you just need to look at this virus differently than in the short-term. So we've, we've exited the short-term portion of the infection. This is a pandemic. I mean, endemic, it's hard to know if you look at the various definitions. An epidemic could be any sort of virus that comes to your community. It has high levels of infection. It gets a lot of people infected, and then it kind of goes away. Pandemic just means there's an epidemic in multiple places. So I don't know exactly the definition, but from a resource standpoint, what it's doing to the hospital systems and the public and how the actual burden of disease and morbidity and mortality that's causing, it clearly is not what it was two years ago. I mean, I don't even know that's disputable. And so the other thing we can look at, too, with SARS-CoV-2 is it is evolving. It is changing. There are different variants coming all the time. That's normal. That's what we would expect. But also, because it's changing, we can't have a perfect immune response to, to this virus. You know, even you can, 
some viruses, once you've seen it once, you can never get it again, but it's probably not the case with the coronavirus because I said, like I said, you're not going to have enough sterilizing antibodies that you can have in your upper respiratory tract that are going to prevent you from getting it, prevent you from getting really sick. Uh, so, but it, since it's changing all the time, it's going to be harder to have a perfect immune response. What will happen is you'll just basically be what we call a cold. We don't actually, we, I should say, we don't, we rarely test to see what kind of virus you have. If you go to the doctor's office and you have a cold, it's not a bacterial infection where you got like sinusitis or something like that, where antibiotics don't work, you don't really care what kind of cold it is. You don't care if it's a rhinovirus, a parainfluenza virus, a rhinovirus, uh, another coronavirus. You don't care because the treatment's the same. Rest, stay away from other people, don't get them sick, you know, hydrate yourself, those sorts of things. It's just, you'll get over it. And, and that's sort of your, that's your body. Just, that's how it's designed to get through the uh, environment. So all that being said, SARS-CoV-2 is, being around, is going to be around for a long time. You're going to get infected multiple times. No matter how many times you're vaccinated, it's going to happen. And we'll go into that a little bit further. But uh, also, before I go any further, I just want to disclose that I am running for the University of Michigan Board of Regents this year, statewide race. This is, I'm recording this on October 3rd, 2022. So this election is the 1st of November, I think like the 4th or something like that. I'm running as a libertarian, so I have just as full disclosure. Even the state of Michigan can certainly vote for me. Anything I'm talking about is, you know, it, I don't know, it's like election or campaign sort of material, but I guess just disclose that for what it's worth. So right now... There are a lot of things bugging me. So one is the world is full of grifters and it's full of charlatans. Uh, <laughs> I am stunned, and but probably shouldn't be, that there's so many people who are going out of their way to make money or to be get fame, notoriety using COVID, like either as a an alarmist or I'll say minimalist. So the COVIDians, the um, the anti-COVIDians. I don't know exactly what the terms are. People who are totally freaked out by COVID all the time, and they they push as hard as they can that it is the end of the world. And those who are insistent that everything those people say is 100% wrong. And I like to point out that we do nuance the show. We actually try and look at what's right and wrong. And there's some things that are just impossible to know what's right and wrong, and that's just. The world is a matter of gray, and you can't sometimes know like what the right policy is, what the right medication gives someone is. It changes. But the key is, I think, is knowing that there are people who are capitalizing on this, on fear, anxiety, anger, whatever it might be, or you know, people are angry at being angry at being afraid, and people pushing the panic, and just recognizing people for who they are. There's some people who are trying to cut through it, and they're certainly on one side or the other a little bit more than the other, than the others. For and again, I hate saying sides because I feel like it's a virus. It doesn't have sides. The virus doesn't care who you are. It just cares that you're, you know, Homo sapiens, right? Like it can infect you. But looking at this from a political standpoint, I guess, or I don't know exactly what the standpoint is, but the fact you clearly know what I mean. There are people who are alarmists and people who are minimalists. There's probably some truth somewhere in there. I think probably. There was more alarmism early, which was maybe more appropriate because people hadn't been infected yet. Now we are moving away from that. Now it should be more minimalist people like recognizing that, that the reality of what COVID is, what it's going to be in the future, and what you can actually do, right? So I think once you have people vaccinated, et cetera, or haven't had a prior infection, they have some immunity built up, you're kind of about as good as, good as you can get. 
but it's caused a lot of problems with science. Media certainly inflamed this, but science has gotten broken. We're not able to discuss things. We just see recently California passed a bill to prevent doctors from, uh, they'll take their license, medical license away if they provide misinformation, whatever that means. I don't, you know, it's not clear. Because I guess it's just defined by the medical board. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's going to, it's a chilling effect. I think lots of doctors should be allowed to give bad opinions and bad advice. There's a malpractice system. If you're way outside the bounds of things that are dangerous, that's what sort of keeps you in line as a physician. But there's just a lot of latitude in how you treat people and how you approach disease processes or, you know, whatever. And I, it's, it's concerning to me if that would be in, that that sort of First Amendment principles or certainly the doctor-patient relationship is hurt in any way. Obviously, there are other restrictions on speech that are reasonable, like commercial speech, and there's speech on certain platforms that can sort of do what they want since they're private. I get that. I get your employer might want you to do a certain thing. I understand those things, and you know that's different than the state taking away your ability to earn a living. Now, I guess you, if you're a hardcore libertarian, you're like, well, you know, you offered to let them license you whether you can or can't do things. So you should have to play by the rules. But I think, you know, we should, as a principle, allow people to have latitude in discussion because the problem is, is as we stifle speech, you're not getting rid of it. Right. I mean, still the people who have crazy notions about COVID, you know, uh, making people infertile or the vaccine, certainly uh, they're still going to have their opinions. It's if you suppress it, there's going to be sort of concerns like why are you suppressing it? Well, clearly there must be some truth behind it. Right. Those people still have their, their um, they'll still have their followers. They'll still have that message getting out. So you can't suppress bad thought. The best thing you can do is you can approach it and have a civilized discussion. What should have happened with COVID early on is we should have been discussing trade-offs. We should have been discussing the science. We should have been looking at these things. And the places that you do that are the academic institutions. Those are the places where you say, all right, let's get a bunch of people sitting together Let's hash through these things. Maybe some people are bad, you know, they're bad explaining things or they're coming with poor arguments or they're coming with lies or whatever. But those can all get flushed out when it comes to the academics. I mean, you might bring, you know, 20 abstracts and say, well, see, all the preprints are showing this. Well, those are preprints. Those haven't been peer reviewed. Even the peer review things, they have to be replicated, right? I mean, just because you had one study that proves one thing, no one would think that that's adequate evidence that something does or doesn't work. I mean, that's not the way the scientific method works. And so that's important that we, we should have that. Uh, so that part has broken science. It has broken our discourse. And because science and then media and then I think the politicians latch on to this, they've all worked together to obviously make it a very challenging environment for us to be productive and sort of find the truth, whatever the truth means. But certainly when you want to try and find good treatment options, when you have good preventative options, how do you get, how do you find those and how much should your level of concern be for these sorts of things? And so without this discourse, honest discourse, it's been a Achilles heel. It's really been, it's really hampered our ability to get through this COVID. And so that leads us to, you know, what, of course, at the core layer of that, or I guess part of the Part of the problem with this is to the government agencies are too are also really broken right now. And when I those are obviously I mean the FDA, the CDC, I guess you say NIAID. That's when Fauci ran. Uh, it's very politicized now. Obviously, a government agency by its very existence is political. 
you might say, oh, well, they're based on science or it's whatever, but it, clearly it's not. And because if it's part of the political unit of government, it has to be by its nature political. It's going to make decisions that are not always, uh, that are, that are influenced at least by politics, by the people who make decisions. And that's the executive branch and people in the executive branch appoint people in those positions. Now, sometimes they don't change those people who are there. If that's the case, then you would expect it not to be very differing as far as its political um, trajectory goes. But clearly, the, the CDC and FDA have, and their leaders, Surgeon General throwing there too, and then obviously all the White House and everything, they have all been, this has all been a very political sort of disease, which is really weird. But it has also been very challenging to get to the truth and when you, and to find policies that make sense. It has created a top-down approach to battling this virus. I mean, we have a federal system in this country so that governors can sort of push back on parts of it but they're not always effective. And so that's been a challenge as well. Hopefully we're getting to a point where that's not going to be as much the case, but it still feel like it's very much the case. The case. And the, and of course the problem is, is the CDC and the FDA are our governing bodies for medication releases and for recommendations for health, uh, for pandemics, for instance, for the CDC, especially. And so when they're having trouble, uh, being apolitical and sort of just providing the evidence as we know or provide or providing shoddy evidence which has been more of what's happened recently it erodes your trust and it of course makes it difficult to have things that are pretty well established to, to be able to have credibility when you speak of those things and and we've definitely seen that breakdown with the fda and the cdc and the fact that it's so coordinated i think has been another big problem with the that they are lockstep with each other it doesn't it it doesn't seem credible, right? I think that's part of the problem with the with with the fact that you don't have any differing opinions really, at least that are obvious to the pol to the public, uh, or to you know someone like me in medicine. So you feel you have a very top down, sort of monolithic sort of response, and that doesn't seem very reasonable. Uh, it, and it, it so it definitely seem, feels like it's phony. And, and I think that's been a real problem. And when things have been proven wrong, there's no apologizing. There's no like, oh, we were wrong. It was just like, oh, well, we always knew that. And so there's a little bit of like gaslighting, which is, I think, really challenging to, to maintain a credibility. And, and it's going to have, well, as we'll discuss later, it's going to have some real long downstream effects that are going to be long, long lasting, that are going to be a real problem. So let's talk about mandates, which drive me kind of crazy. Uh, first of all, masks, masking mandates. Most places don't have mask mandates anymore. I think when you look at the evidence for masking in general, uh, the efficacy, the, which means how well it works, is very dubious in the public. So there are two different types of experiments you do in science. There's in vitro, which means you do it like in a lab, you know, like in a petri dish. And there's in vivo, where you see what something happens in real life, right? So you can say, uh, if we make the speed limit 35 miles an hour, uh, if we put a speed limit sign that says 35 miles an hour in this on the street, that we will prevent that everyone will travel 35 miles an hour. Well, you and I know that you know in vitro in a lab you could sure make an experiment where you show everyone's driving 35. You're like, yeah, this works as a great idea. But in reality, people are going to drive 25, people are going to drive 55, and so what happens when the real world meets the science? So would you whatever your experiment is set up that you were going to do at one thing. Well, that doesn't mean that's not how most people are. 
I mean, you have to do, recognize that the world is a complicated, messy place and people do things the wrong way. They do things intentionally the wrong way. Some people are just confused. You know, I wear my mask inside out, upside down, below my nose, above my nose, you know, over my chin, under my chin, not over my chin, not my mouth exposed, whatever. I mean, when it comes to masking, I'm just getting the public to understand how to do it is you would think it's obvious, but it's not like anything. There's certain things that are obvious and some things aren't. So that has been a real problem and it's made it so any sort of mask, you know, mandate you have, you have to recognize that there's going to be, that it has to be something that people could follow. You ask someone to do something for extraordinary long lengths of time or in extraordinary measures or things that are incredibly uncomfortable or whatever, like having high school athletes play basketball or volleyball or something like that with a mask on. That is not a reasonable expectation. One is you don't know the efficacy of using a mask, how well it works. When someone's running up and down the court breathing really hard, is that mask as effective as it is on your dummy in your lab when it's just breathing like a normal respiratory rate or whatever? Um, my guess is probably not. Uh, the other thing is the types of masks that are, you know, most people are not wearing surgical masks. And I would tell you if someone works in the OR all the time, surgical masks are not designed to prevent aerosolized viruses or infections. Sure, I think if you put anything in front of your face, it's going to have a, probably a decreased incidence of getting some things in your in your respiratory tract. Uh, you know, I put a whatever, you know, a piece of cloth in front of my face. And you know, sure, I've got a couple of two, three ply a surgical masks. It's going to be more effective. But the reason we wear surgical masks in the OR is not for infection control, really. It's it, at least it's mainly just for droplet protection for the patient. If I sneeze, I don't spew droplets of stuff everywhere. Or if there's a splatter, it doesn't get into my mouth and my nose. I mean, that's why we wear masks. It's not for infectious control. If someone actually had active tuberculosis, no one's wearing a surgical mask thinking, well, I'm safe. I got a surgical mask. You'd have to put on N95, a fitted N95 where you don't have, where you have a good seal. You have good ventil you have uh, no ventilation leakage around from above or below, so you can't have a beard, all sorts of things like that. And so the expectation to get people to wear a regular mask, like a cloth mask or a surgical mask properly everywhere all the time is, I think, not great. And then if you try and add to that, well, now you have to wear an N95 where it has to be fitted and has to have a good seal. Well, the likelihood of getting the public to, if, if, if you manage to do that and, and they could actually wear it properly, then it probably would have a significant effect on things. But that will go back to our previous point, which is if everyone did that, would you prevent infections of SARS-CoV-2? And the answer would be no, because at some point people are going to take them off when they go home. They got to eat their hamburger or they got to, you know, drink something during the day. I mean, they can go, I suppose, to eight to 10, 12 hours without eating or drinking anything. It's possible. But it's unreasonable to expect anyone to wear that that long at all times because, you know, we need to see faces. We're human beings. And so anyway, the mask mandates for that reason were doomed to fail on a, for practical reasons, for practical purposes. There's no way you can expect people to wear masks Certainly not for more than a couple weeks. I mean, that's, I think, extraordinary. And then the fact they can't wear the right masks, and I would say even if you wear the right masks, the next question is how long do you wear them? Well, if you say, well, until SARS-CoV-2 goes away, we already established that it's here forever. So if you've accepted the fact that you're going to wear an N95 the rest of your life, I suppose, you know, and anytime you're in public, I suppose you can live life that way, but you have to wear it forever. And you can say, well, we're just going to wear it when the infection rates are low. Well, they're going to only be low until you stop wearing the mask. Then as soon as you, you don't, all those people will be are immunologically naive and they will get infected with whatever the new variant is of SARS-CoV-2. And so you'll start a quick outbreak. 
you can quickly pivot and say, well, now tomorrow everyone's got to wear a mask, but how are you, you going to communicate this to everybody? It's a pretty much impossible sort of, um, it's an impossible sort of thing to expect for anyone to do. So there's no way that a mask mandate could work realistically if for any long extended period of time. One, training, I mean, we can't even train everybody to know how to do CPR, which is without a doubt a huge public health benefit to uh, maintain people, uh, you know, who've got a cardiac arrest. And we can't even train everyone to do that much. Uh, there's no reason to think that, there's no way you can think they're going to have resources to get masks and wear them properly and all the time. I, it, I just don't see how it's, it's even like something you should consider. Also, I think you look at the studies, most studies with regular masks or surgical masks don't show a whole lot of effect. In fact, they've been pretty amb ambiguous as far as the results, which is what you'd expect. I think it'd be pretty much like anything else that it's going to have a marginal to no effect. And so will it affect things a little bit? Sure, maybe a little, but probably more than anything, it's going to impede other things in your life. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's highly unlikely that a mask would work uh, if you're like a regular mask for an aerosolized virus. Now, initially, maybe we didn't know for sure it was a droplet transmission, then a mask would work much better. But if it, as soon as you know it's aerosolized, I mean, I mean, you're basically are saying you're not going to have any air get to you <laughs> for the most part, right? Unless it's like highly filtered. The surgical masks, there's no way they could work. So it's never made any sense to me. And I think, you know, when you look at, so then the question is, you know, do you need them in the hospital? And so most people where I am in West Michigan, they don't, no one wears masks anywhere. And which is fine. I think it's totally reasonable and I don't either, but I have to wear masks in healthcare settings because that's the recommendation for the CDC and lots of things. The hospital systems insist on it. I'm not sure what the hospital is hoping to accomplish for this. This is not unique to Michigan. This is most places that I'm aware of. The healthcare settings are seen as different. Well, because patients are vulnerable, they're, you know, they're sick. I totally get that. It's totally understandable. But for one thing, does it really, is it really preventing a whole lot for an aerosolized virus? I think the evidence is pretty weak that it's doing much. Uh, then, uh, so then the question is, you know, how long do you do it? Are there any trade-offs to this? So I could come in, I could wear a hazmat suit at work all day long. We could expect everywhere hazmat suits. And we know for sure the transmission of things would be a lot less, right? For viruses and bacteria, et cetera. But what's the cost of wearing that? I mean, it's expensive. I, I, I'm saddened every time I leave the hospital, I just see a trash cans full of just these masks. And those are the ones making the trash can. They're the ones that are like strewn in the parking lot. They're in the ramp. They're all over the place, right? People litter or accidentally falls in their pocket or whatever. I'm not. So that's just a tremendous waste just for landfills and stuff. I mean, and you know, you have to buy them, you have to produce them. Just a, it's just a waste for something that I think doesn't provide any benefit. So then let's say it, um, let's say it, you're going to wear it for in the hospital. Well, what are the other trade-offs? Well, I can't communicate as well with patients. They can't understand me as well. Is that important? Well, I don't know. Do you think it's important to know what your doctor is saying, or your nurse is saying? Is it, you know, is it important to see someone's face? Is there some sort of cost to not seeing people's smiling face or whatever it might be? Well, there's probably, you know, a benefit to that, right? That's kind of what we're designed with faces. So anyway, I think there, if you're not significantly decreasing the um, viral load, from wearing masks, I don't see what the point of it is. Now, if someone's immunocompromised to the point where they're like bone marrow transplant patient, then we've always masked up. If someone's got tuberculosis, we always put a mask on and then we leave the room and we take the mask off. Those are prudent measures. But to wear one 24 hours or you know, whenever you're on shift, I think it's 
I think it's real questionable. I think you have to have a real good reason uh, and you have to have really good evidence that it's something useful. And I just don't think it's there. Now, you could say, well, it's no big deal. You just wear it. But I have you know, people I've worked with for two plus years. I've not seen their faces. I don't know, really know what they look like. I mean, I know what their eyes look like. But I, it's, it's always hard enough for me when I see someone in the, in the wild, <laughs> my coworkers, because I'm in the OR. And I say, oh, I go, oh, I didn't know you had hair down your waist or it's, you know, you've got red hair or something like that. So I think you know, that alone is a challenge. I, I just think we have to really wonder why, ask ourselves why we're doing it and if it's useful. Then let's look at lockdowns. I think we can just pretty much discuss, or just sort of dis- uh, just push them out of hand, that the lockdowns and the measures to prevent the spread of the virus, although it lowered it slightly pro- probably, if you just limit social and interaction, uh, it's only delaying what's going to happen later. And so it didn't really change anything. It didn't flatten the curve significantly. We still had massive uh, viral loads all the time and, and it got hit the hospitals. We were always able to handle it. It wasn't like it was in some other parts of the world. We have lots of excess hospital capacity. I think we saw that. It stretched us for sure. We had to slow down surgery sometimes and no question that it caused problems. But we're not seeing anything near that at this point, even though there's lots of COVID all around. So I think, you know, lockdowns were a bad idea and there's lots of consequences to that. And I think, you know, you've seen the economic, political, educational ramifications of the lockdowns. And I think those things we need to really apologize for, or at least study significantly and see if it's, if it was worth the cost. And I think I suspect most of the time it's not. We'll talk about vaccines. This is a hard one because I don't think there's, I don't think there's much question that vaccination or prior exposure creation of an immunologic response in your body is beneficial to you to fight off the virus or to not get as significant as sick. Um, I th- you know people make con- they contend that it's not the case and that people still got just sick from virus. I I find those that pretty dubious when you that those um, those reports. So I I don't think that's very credible. But I think it's important to recognize that once you have formed those T cells along those um, long term T cells, that you're going to have as robust an immune response as you're going to have to this virus. Maybe if you get far enough out where you're not exposed to coronavirus for years and years and years, then maybe if you get exposed to it like 20 years later, uh, then you might have been benefited from booster. It's possible that, you know, your body has pretty much all those T cells have died off or something like that. But I think it's pretty unlikely. And I think it's, especially we've seen COVID now, I mean, you're seeing it spread all the time. It's hard to imagine people being able to avoid <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 or one of its variants for more than a few years. I mean, I think you're just going to always be running into it. So if that's the case, I don't know. I, I don't really understand the, um, the, the concern with having, you know, boosters probably for people who are older, uh, people who are immunocompromised, who don't have as good a, of a, an immune re- response. It makes sense that it might be a three or four shot vaccine series. And that may be a better way of looking at it than a booster for someone who's, you know, 80. But at some point, you either have the immune response, or you have the immune sort of coverage protection, or you don't. And so I don't know exactly what the point is of doing further um, boosting. Maybe someone will come on here and, and, and convince me otherwise. But the data for the booster is, I think, uh, not great. Probably for people who are older, again, if making it like a three vaccine series, it makes sense. But beyond that, I don't quite understand the point of it. Even right now, you're giving a bivalent booster showing with half the original, and then you're getting um, 
you're getting some other, again, Omicron and Delta strains that are pretty much gone now. You have other strains. So I'm not quite sure what the 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 rationale is between behind this, except that Pfizer wants to make some money and Moderna. Um, again, someone convinced me otherwise, but there have been no randomized controlled trials showing that there's huge efficacy of this sort of thing. They have they've certainly not shown an efficacy for preventing well, certainly doesn't prevent transmission. And so one of the hopes is with a vaccine that you're going to prevent transmission. That hasn't happened. There's clearly, it may slow transmission slightly, but not enough to make it much of an impact. So if that's the case, then a mandate for a vaccine makes really no sense. It may be prudent for you to get vaccinated. And so that's the next question. Is it prudent for you? If it doesn't actually slow spread, we can't mandate it because we're not, me getting a vaccine doesn't keep you safe, right? So if that's the case, then does you getting a vaccine keep you safe? Well, maybe. Probably once you've been vaccinated and, or had infection or something like that and have that, those, that T-cell formation, then you're probably as protected as you're going to get, as far as we can tell. There's certainly not any really good data showing that something that is extremely unlikely event, like a very small child having a, a bad reaction to SARS-CoV-2 ending up in the hospital or getting um, MISC or something like that, that the vaccine prevents that. And the reason you can't show that is because you have to have, for something that's very, very rare, to show that a therapeutic intervention is useful, you have to have a really large study. If it was something super obvious, like the polio vaccine, well, then it doesn't take as many kids. I mean, polio vaccine still had a large trials to, to prove it because uh, paralysis is a really bad, you know, big problem. But you don't need as many people to get infected, kids, to show that there's a, there's a benefit to it. So you have to have, you have to have for a very for something that's a very low likely event, you have to have a very large sample size, and that just hasn't been done. I mean, to my knowledge, there's not a good study showing that that the that the vaccine or the booster significantly reduces the chance of severe disease in children. Now, as you move on in age, it becomes more obvious that it's useful, and so there's no question that having immune protection will keep you out of the hospital more. I think that's pretty clearly been proven. I feel fairly confident with that. There's also, of course, and if, if you have a if you have an intervention that has not shown to have be a huge benefit, then you have to recognize that there are potential adverse events. Uh, myocarditis is certainly a signal that's been seen in young young men or boys. Uh, it's like adolescent boys to like the twenties, and so the notion of mandating something like that, and this is where I have a real problem with with colleges right now. Is there mandating not only the vaccine series, which, again, if you've had it, I don't know if you're 22, why you need to really get vaccinated. I, you can if you want. It's not medical advice. You can do what you want. But I think the question of the benefit of it has not been clearly pointed out, I guess, in the studies for people who are teenagers or 20-year-olds, again, because they're usually not getting that sick. And so you have to have a big, large sample size, which they did not do for a lot of the studies because there's emergency um, authorization. So is a booster, is it going to be highly advantageous? Maybe. And I think that's a decision for you to make as a parent or as a you know, young adult. But I think that should be a decision that you make. It's not something that should be made for you by your university saying you can't get your degree, you're going to get kicked out of school or something like that. I, th I think these are unreasonable sort of things, because, especially since the, the vaccine, the, the booster, benefits you. It's your decision, right? We have we, Autonomy is one of the four foundational basis of our uh, medical ethics and so you have to have you have to have autonomy with your body and so i don't understand why this is so challenging i get it 
that we were hoping that the vaccine prevented the spread, but it doesn't. So whether people are vaccinated or not is not really going to protect people who are unvaccinated who are walking around or people who are vaccinated walking around who might be immunocompromised. I'm not sure. And again, we have to recognize there is a safety signal. Anytime you do something, even if it has no effect, well, you you have to say, well, then why are you making intervention? You first, at, at minimum, maybe you're making someone's arm sore or you're you know making them miss work. There's some sort of cost to this. There's time involved. There's resource involved. And so just do something because you think, well, it might be a good idea. You have to show some sort of benefit. You can't have an intervention of any sort that, that you, certainly that you can't mandate, uh, that doesn't actually have any proven benefit. Now, everybody has to make the decision of whether it's worth doing something or not. And those are the decisions that the patient should make in, you know, in consultation with their physician. The notion that, you, that they don't have this choice, that there's some sort of greater you know, societal good, I don't see. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I definitely open up possibility that I'm really wrong here. But it, if it, if there is a benefit to it, it's I, it's very small, and it's one that I think, that from a society standpoint, I'm not quite sure what it is. If if you think it's really changing the transmission rate, which is the only thing I could think that you would think is worthwhile, but even then, it's not stopping the vaccine or the virus in its track. So it's hard to, you know, make that argument. And I think the biggest problem with the mandates and with the vaccines and with a vaccine that clearly for kids is not keeping, there weren't scores of kids in the hospital from COVID. There were some, no question. And it's tragedy. I've lost a child. I know what it's, it's awful. It's terrible. And I get it. But these are decisions that should be made by the family because we, we've seen that if you're vaccinated or not vaccinated, it's, you're, it, you're not, your ability to transmit to others is probably not that different. So it's not, you're not stopping the the transmission of this vex, this virus, it's still moving around. And so we can't just rely on mandates to prevent this thing because that's not what's going to stop the virus. Nothing's going to stop it. There are animal species, there, you know, deer get infected with it and can transmit it. There are multiple animal reservoirs. So it'll, we can never eradicate SARS-CoV-2. It's always going to be with us. It's always going to be something affecting us. So what it's going to cause though is it's causing problems with other vaccines and other vaccine hesitancy of things we know that are, you know, that are very preventable problems like polio. We've pretty much eradicated polio yet. Now the instance they're seeing, they're seeing polio in like the sewage system in number of metropolitan cities. And that's a fecal oral transmission. Uh, that is a virus that if it, if there's a lot of kids who are suddenly not vaccinated, we're going to see outbreaks of these things that we thought we had eradicated or pretty much eliminated because different viruses respond differently to vaccines this is polio is not coronavirus. It's not influenza. It's a different type of virus, right? And so the vaccines have different efficacy. They work different ways. They're more effective or less effective. But my real concern here is not only have you with this pushing this vaccine that is, you know, it works, but it, it has, it works in its own way. It doesn't like prevent transmission. So if it if it's if you're telling people that it is and it's not clearly not preventing transmission, they're going to think you're lying about everything else about it. That's an entirely reasonable sort of uh, response to it. It ruins your credibility. And the problem, of course, is is that now they're going to not trust you about all the other things that we know work. And so all these other childhood diseases that we've pretty much wiped out, like I've never seen H flu uh, B or Hib where you have the swollen epiglottis and epiglottitis and a kid who can't breathe, who's, you know, can asphyxiate. I haven't seen it because it pretty much has been eradicated thanks to vaccinations. 
Well, that may go away because people are stopped vaccinating and then now we're going to have an outbreak of that again. That makes me, I mean, angry that people have, and people, public health officials who have been pushed this, this vaccine and made, I think, outrageous claims of what it can do, or at least exaggerated claims of what it could do. That's probably a better way of putting it. They said it could do certain things. And since they continue to push the, the narrative that it can do these things, which we know by now, everybody knows that it doesn't do, that now people are going to distrust other things that the medical professionals are going to provide, recommend. I feel for pediatricians, they're going to try and push these vaccines that they know prevent serious childhood morbidity, mortality, deafness, you know, certainly death, ICU stays, respiratory problems, paralysis. They're going to be, continue trying to, to encourage the patients to get these things, and it, they're going to get refused by patients their parents because they're like, well, you know, the last time the the establishment told me or the medical industry told me about this, they were lying. So why would I believe you now? There's already hesitancy before about putting, you know, impure things in and concerns about autism, all these sorts of things, which have been pretty thoroughly disproven. But, but even if they weren't disproven, I mean, you're now, there are a lot, there are a large percentage of people who are not going to believe, believe the uh, physicians on this or, you know, whatever, the public health people. And you're not going to get them back. It's not like this is something like, oh, oops, our, our bad. Go back to getting all the rest, regular stuff. Return, we're changing our mind about the COVID vaccine, which, by the way, they haven't given up. They're still pushing it. If that was the case, people still aren't going to come back. Because once someone's lied to you or misinformed you a couple times, you're not going to just suddenly start believing them again all right away. It takes years to get that trust back. If you ever do get it back. And the more you seem political and the more sort of uh, authoritarian approach or top-down approach you use to try and convince people to do things, the more they're going to resist. I think, you know, maybe more so in this country because of, you know, our history of being sort of uh, individualistic or, you know, believing in sort of our, you know, doing things on our own. I don't know. So anyway, I think it's important to recognize that there's some serious problems there. And I don't know how to fix it. I wish I could, I wish I could tell you why, but I think it's a real problem and it's something we need to start addressing right away because the more we push things that are clearly not true or are exaggerations, I think we're going to pay for it as a medical profession as a country pretty, pretty easily. Um, then I just want to briefly touch on, uh, antivirals, uh, Paxlovid, you know, Ivermectin, Vitamin D, I think, you know, I've done an episode on vitamin D. I've not done one on ivermectin. I didn't find any of the evidence very compelling. I, you know, people had made comments about uh, Pepsid as being, a, you know, Tagamet being one that, Semetidine, I should say, that'd be useful against COVID. Uh, people have tried other things too. And I, I guess I would say that much as I find the people who are, insist that every sort of problem in society now or, um, well, I guess I'll say this. When it comes to the charlatans in the world, there are plenty of people in the anti-COVID or the COVID minimalist, we'll call it, I don't know, camp, who claim every single death that happens on a football field or any sort of medical problem, well, clearly it's because everyone's vaccinated. There's no other possible explanation. Or that there are more excess deaths that we know are not attributed to COVID because, you know, we can look at see which ones are related to COVID specifically, like uh, causing, you know, pneumonia, COVID pneumonia. No question lots of people died from COVID. I don't think it's really in dispute about that. Some people will, but for the most part, I think uh, it's, it's indisputable, but there are other reasons. There are other, like, there's a lot of excess deaths that are not attributed to COVID. Well, the reason for that is maybe the vaccine. I doubt it. It's possible, but there are 
there are scores of different reasons that people could have. There could be excess deaths. Maybe you've delayed medical care that you would ordinarily not have delayed. Maybe everybody delays their going to see the ecologist for cancer by a month or two months. Maybe it's because of COVID policies, possibly because things are locked down, or just because they're hesitant to go in or they're doing other things or they don't trust doctors as much and so they wait a little bit longer. They're, you know, the, all those things alone could increase the chance of you getting to the cancer too late, let's say, or getting that heart cath that you needed. Now you've gotten serious heart problems or you've, you know, I don't know, you've got some serious blockage that's caused coronary ischemia or something like that. There's possibly that because of the social isolation that there's more depression and more anxiety and that's caused a you know problem with your health, which we know that you know your mental uh, health actually affects your physical health. But also maybe it affects your uh, you know more, more suicides or more other dangerous behavior and so you're more likely in trauma. There, there are all kinds of reasons. I would think that the likelihood of the vaccine causing this I think it's pretty low. Does the vaccine cause some problems with blood clotting and things like that? Well, we know it does a little bit. Does it on the micro level that we're not paying attention to? Maybe. I don't know. So it's possible. It's one component. But I think the people who say, well, for sure it's because of, you know, because of the, the vaccine. I mean, otherwise we never had these things happen. Well, I don't know. I'm, I won't, I'll be the first one to say, I'm not sure if people were dropping on the football pitch, as they say in England uh, before, maybe, I don't know. I can't say, I mean, now with social media, everyone's focused on it and they just, I mean, I see posts of people like clearly making the inference that it's because of the vaccination that's causing these things. I, I find it hard to believe, but it's possible. I won't deny that it's a possibility, but I think, you know, when it comes to Paxlovid, you had a medication that was pushed. That is an antiviral, much like Tamiflu was for the influenza. You have to give it within a certain window it was only tested on people who were unvaccinated, which at this or had not had previous exposure to COVID, which at this point, I don't know how many people that is. That can't be more than like 5% of the American population that hasn't had COVID or been vaccinated. And so if that's the case, I don't know. I mean, you think you need to run new studies to see if Paxlovid works because we've seen plenty of uh, data or and anecdotal evidence of people who have rebounded problems with Paxlovid afterwards. I think a lot of these things, and this is the one of the problems with the FDA and the CDC, this is a problem that existed far before COVID that there's a revolving door between industry and the regulatory bodies. And so there's an incentive if you're a regulator to maybe, you know, push packs, push these medications or allow them or say that they don't really need to finish the studies completely or maybe, and because you're going to get your next job in that industry. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how many people end up on these boards afterwards for these pharmaceutical companies. We've already seen Scott Godley, who is a former FDA commissioner, I think it's FDA, who is now like on, I think Pfizer's board or something like that. So, I don't know. That doesn't seem like a very, uh, it certainly seems like a conflict of interest, right? If you, now you may not have a conflict of interest right now, but if you think, oh, well, I know in five years I'll be working, I'll be able to say, well, I worked at FDA. Why don't you let me on your board and I'll get make, you know, six, seven figures at your pharmaceutical company. That's what congressmen do. We know that. We know they go work for lobbyists and they work for various industries. So I don't know. I mean, I, I have a, I have a hard time accepting the fact that these medications are accepted or certain or approved on these sort of, I think, fishy, you know, at least uh, the efficacy is certainly of question. And, and the emergency use authorization is fine, but you have to, if you're going to, if you're going to authorize something on an emergency basis, that's fine. 
But you have to then at some point say, we have to be, you know, as soon as we authorize it, we're going to have studies and study this. We're going to have multiple investigators, multiple studies, not just one, so that we can, you know, if we have three that are all positive, then we know that it actually works versus just one study. Uh, we have to do that. I, I don't see any way, this, this idea that we can just, something such an emergency, we don't have time to figure out the answer to it. You wouldn't do anything this, like, like that in life, right? I just can't imagine that you're, that you're just going to go out about your business and say, well, I'm just going to keep driving. I know my tank says E, but I know I can go a little bit further. And then I'm never going to actually, you know, once I get to my destination, I won't check to see how many more miles I could have driven. It, right? I mean, you'd have to, you want to try and figure things out so that later it's useful to you. It's useful knowledge. Like, oh, I can always drive 10 miles beyond when my car fuel gauge says empty. Maybe it's 15. Maybe it's like one. I don't, those are things you need to know. And so just like that with these, with these medications or with vaccines or with wearing masks, these interventions, you have to actually study them. And to not study them is, I think, a real problem. Yes, there are certainly problems with evidence-based medicine and the generalizability of some sort of condition, excuse me, some sort of condition where you say, like, oh, well, because we're doing X, then we know that uh, Y will happen. Well, that only assumes that the person you are studying is exactly like the person who is going to be getting the intervention later, right? So we've had this all the time in medicine. We do this all the time, which is a problem. I think the beta blocker study is a really great example where we said perioperative, you know, round surgery, you should have beta blockers and we should continue it. And then it became, well, that was a certain subset of patients who had a history of cardiac disease. And then then you expand it to say, well, someone's on a beta blocker, should continue it. Okay. And then it's like, well, if you have maybe real mild hypertension or maybe not even really, but you're 65, maybe you should go on a beta blocker and start that before you have surgery and then just, you know, have it stay on it for two to four weeks afterwards. We started making assumptions that saying these people were just like the people in the original study. And what happened, of course, we look at more from a long-term standpoint, we find that we caused more harm than we thought. And so we just have to be, you know, aware of these possibilities. We can't just be so cavalier about it. And, you know, you can be cavalier in your own life or how you drive. If you want to drive, you know, how you live. If you want to go rock climbing without any harnesses, well, you're the one accepting the risk for that, I suppose. But we can't just go about and just from a, from a public advocacy or, um, you know, if you have regulatory bodies, you can't just be cavalier about these things. You have to say we have to know the answer or do our best to find the answer. We can't just say, well... Best of luck to you. It's real important that we do this, but never actually study it and follow up and make sure that you did the right thing so that the next time something happens, you actually have a history so you know what's going on. Well, I think I'm going to turn off there, and I appreciate the comments from people here. Um, yeah, I've, I I think I just had to get it off my chest. I think it's time we – so I guess in summary, right? Uh, SARS-CoV-2 is here for the rest of your life. You're going to get infected multiple times. So you can't avoid it. Uh, you can avoid it for a little while. You know, if you're super careful and you avoid people, you know, I guess you can avoid it for a long time. If you want to be a hermit living in the woods, although you have to avoid the deer because the deer have it. Uh, if you want to wear a mask the rest of your life, I guess you can, but there are trade-offs for that. One is you're not going to be, you know, as interesting to, you'll be hard to understand and, you know, it's uncomfortable. I, anyone who tries to do anything serious, you know, with a mask on for a long period of N95, it's really uh, uncomfortable. I mean, you can do it, but, I mean, you can do anything, but... To wear 995 is, I think, unreasonable all the time. Uh, and then, uh, and I guess one thing I would mention too, the immunocompromised is a good question because people say, well, you can't, you can't be so cavalier about not wearing masks or, you know, not getting vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. Because you might have, you might have SARS-CoV-2 and you give it to somebody who's immunocompromised. And that is true. And so that's why, you know, again, in the hospital, if someone's immunocompromised and they're at, at 
a threat from being hurt, you absolutely want to make sure that they that they're protected. But you have to make sure that if you are someone who is immunocompromised all the time, right? If you had a solid organ transplant, you didn't get the solid organ transplant so that you could live in bubble wrap the rest of your life. Yes, you need to be careful. Yes, you need to take precautions. You know, do you live in a house full of mold? Probably not, right? You don't like, you know, you don't go looking for trouble. But you also have to live life too. And it's un, it's um, not fair to expect the rest of the world to bend to your special needs. That's not callous. That's not selfish. That's just a recognition that if you are someone who has a certain condition, you have to go about your way to protect yourself. Yes, it's reasonable for, for society to have accommodations for you. Like, for instance, let's say you're stuck in a wheelchair. Well, as long as we make it so you can get in and out of places, I think that's a reasonable accommodation from the public. The expectation that everyone has to have everything so that you can do whatever you want is, I think, an unreasonable accommodation. I mean, it'd be nice if people could, but sometimes it's just too expensive or you can't do it. So if you're someone who has a short-term problem, like let's say you got a bone marrow transplant, you've got to, you know, while you wait for your immune system, your, your cell, blood cells to sort of, you know, arrive, you've got to wait a certain period of time. Well, then it's reasonable to do everything you can to avoid contact with people for six months or six weeks or so with an N95. That's a reasonable uh, thing you can do. But if you're always immunocompromised, it's unreasonable for you to expect everyone else to do everything, to, to live in fear and to do everything they can to prevent getting you sick when basically you're sort of, you've got some sort of condition and there's just no way that it can be fixed. I, I don't think of myself as a, as a callous person. I recognize that there are some problems, but we got asked recent, soon after this sort of COVID hit, you know, when you had the immunocompromised, we had a uh, child with us who had a solid organ transplant. And the question was, you know, are you going to protect him, keep him out of the way? And we're like, the reason he got it is so that he could live life. Yes, he's at higher risk for things happening, but there, you're at high risk for all sorts of things happening all the time. So I think, you know, those, he can make the decision and how he wants to live his life, but it's up to him. It's not up to me. And so I think we have to recognize that if you're someone who's worried about it, then you have to, you have to extract yourself from places you think are high risk, but it's not reasonable to expect everyone else to behave in extraordinary measures in order to protect you. And I would say there are, are consequences for acting that way for everyone. Let's take one quick example. If everyone walking around you when you walked into a town was wearing a hazmat suit, would you feel comfortable in that place or uncomfortable? If you had people always walking around with a machine gun strapped over their shoulder, right? And they're just walking around, no, just normal. Is that going to make you feel comfortable or uncomfortable? Are you going to maybe have some anxiety? I mean, imagine what we've done to our society that we're always living with the threat of some sort of big thing. And so I think, you know, masks are a minor thing, but I think they're not, they're not minor in the sense that if everyone's wearing a mask, you know something's wrong. It's not normal, right? And so there is a cost to that. I don't know what the cost is. Maybe a little bit more anxiety, maybe more depression, fear, whatever. Aside from just the cost of it, you know, the actual expense and then, you know, the waste problem. So there is a cost to that. And so these are the things that people who are elected leaders are supposed to make the trade-offs for. You know, do you mandate the vaccine? Well, it, does it do what you think it does? Does it stop transmission? If not, then really, what do you mandate? Right, so these are the questions that need to be asked. And these are things that have not been asked, they've not been discussed, they've not been debated. And that's why there's so much anger and sort of problems with this, or this whole uh, COVID fiasco, I'll say at this point. Um, so we need to... We need to have rational approach to masking where basically just 
probably just need a mask in places where people are at high risk for, you know, someone who's got active uh, infection that you need to protect yourself or, um, and also, uh, you probably need it as far as it comes to COVID-19. I think there's no reason to have any mandate for vaccination because you're not protecting other people with your vaccine. Uh, it's for their own good, if you think, you know, and that's why you can make the argument for why they should or shouldn't get it. Uh, but that should be a bodily uh, autonomy question for, for those people. That's, uh, again, one of the basis, bases of medical ethics. Uh, then also, uh, when it comes to uh, science and discussion, and I think we just need to have a, a rational policy. We need to actually think about things. We need to talk about things. We need to be have open discussion. People need to come to me and say, you're totally wrong and explain why. I can go up to them and say, you're totally wrong. Let me explain why. And to say that without retribution and to be silenced or fired or whatever, those just aren't helpful. Uh, it's not like people are going around and saying like drinking, you know, drinking bleach or, uh, you know, that's a healthy thing to do. Please do that. That'd be like crazy misinformation and that someone should be, I mean, that should be, they should be silenced for that for sure. Right. Cause we know that's absolutely hundred percent wrong. You know, jumping on airplanes without a parachute. That's a bad idea. Unless of course the planes on the ground, right. That'd be the the dad sort of riddle there. Those are things that, that we, that we can chastise people for. Again, I don't know that you'd fire somebody. You'd say, well, you've, you're exhibiting some poor judgment there because if we, if we get rid of debate, especially in things that are not known and a brand new virus, clearly nothing was known. I understand that you felt like there's needs for someone to do something. I understand why I think we got where we did, but ultimately we need to be more thoughtful about how we approach things. We need to have public officials that actually weigh the the uh, pros and cons of any sort of uh, measure. And we need to just get back to being ourselves and being human. And that's been my biggest struggle with this because although I was able to go to a job and have physical and have personal interactions with people, which was great during the pandemic, I'm also still now sort of limited. I haven't really advanced Everyone else is kind of going back to normal. They go to work. They see people everywhere else we go in society. You don't have to have masks. You don't have, you have normal interactions, but at work I'm not allowed to. And, um, it's a problem. And I don't know. I, I wish it was, I wish it wasn't the case. And I wish the government would sort of fix that because they're the ones who broke it. And so anyway, that's kind of long rant. Hopefully it was helpful and useful to you and you found it entertaining. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe to the show. If you, uh, I will try and come up with more stuff. It's not going to be COVID the next few things. It's going to be some other stuff with, involved with healthcare. I'm pretty much over COVID. I think I've now gotten out of my system, hopefully. And hopefully nothing else weird happens with COVID because then we can just stop talking about it forever, which would be great. So anyway, until next time, uh, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.